morning. It's good to be here in the house of the Lord with all of you folks. Um, I uh, spent, like I mentioned, uh, the past week in Detroit. Uh, once a year, if, if, just in case denominational stuff is new or strange to you, uh, the whole Evangelical Presbyterian Church, uh, kind of nationwide, really globally, because we have some Caribbean presence, uh, gets together as one body. So the, pa- the pastors, each church uh, sends a pastor and up to two elders per pastor that they send. Uh, if you have multiple pastors, you can send multiple pastors. But for every pastor that comes, two elders up to them can join as well. And they all come together as what we call the general assembly. It's the largest, it's kind of the overarching body. We, we have a, a system that is not much unlike the way our country works. So the churches are kind of the local government, the local body. Uh, the state government are the presbyteries. And the, the, if you want to call it the federal government, our, our general assembly. The difference is that the power decreases as you go up. And so there's no like national body telling presbyteries and churches what to do. The national body is the local churches, right? There's not some, I mean, there's a leadership team that does administrative stuff, but the power and the votes and all the choices of what we do as a denomination lies within GA. Uh, and so when we come together, there is no like, this is GA over here and this is our church. Uh, our church is one slice of the pie of General Assembly. And so whether we are a 100-member church, a 200-member church, or a 4,000-member church, we come and we have equal voice and vote and say about how things get, get conducted and the decisions that are made. Um, if you get the Monday FYI, which if you're new and wondering what that is, it's our email newsletter that goes out every Monday morning. It's just a quick kind of usually a note from me and then followed by some kind of, you know, here's some of the things that are happening uh, that, are, that are noteworthy that you should sign up for and those kinds of things. Um, every, every week we send that out, and if you don't get it, let us know, and we'll make sure that you get included on that. You don't have to be a member to get the FYI. You don't even have to come here to get the FYI. If you're listening from South Korea and you want to get the FYI, send us a thing and we'll, we'll send it to you. Um, but next week, or tomorrow, I'll, I'll send out a summary of kind of the things that were talked about at GA that probably matter to you as a congregation so you can stay informed in the life. But all that aside... It was a wonderful time, not just of, of business meetings and, and boring stuff, but also of worship uh, and, and of, of learning and equipping and teaching. And so they have people that come in, all kinds of speakers, uh, both within the EPC and kind of on a national level that, that are known that come in to train and equip pastors and elders in various things. Uh, and this year's theme of the GA was recharge. Um, after years of the COVID whatever, I think the theme of all of our lives should probably be recharge, but that was the theme of, of GA. And I, I want you just to take a note of here's some of the kind of topic discussions, breakout sessions, big room kind of plenary sessions that were going on. And, and, and I want you to see if you notice kind of a difference in, 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 in the theme of GA versus what happened. Here's some of the things that I personally went to. Uh, the pursuit of public fidelity, living as Christians oppressed in the public square. Prepare for coming persecution. That was by one of the EPC pastors, Andrew Brunson. You probably recall praying for him. He was imprisoned in Turkey uh, on charges, on false trumped-up charges of terrorism and spent two-plus years in jail in a Turkish prison before being released. Uh, And and at the time, uh, I know Mike Penson, the State Department during that administration, worked on that pretty hard uh, and was involved in getting him out. But he got up and talked about the coming of persecution. So a guy that was in a Turkish prison got up and said, hey, um, this is what it was like, and you guys should all prepare for that. It's coming. Very encouraging. I felt recharged after that one, for sure. 
Uh, uh, Ed Stetzer, he's a national uh, speaker. If you know him, you, you probably have read some of his stuff, maybe. Uh, Evangelizing the Nuns, all, not N-U-N-S, which I went to thinking, the nuns? Huh. That'd be an interesting topic, how to evangelize nuns. But it's N-O-N-E-S, so those who are not affiliated in any way religiously. Evangelizing nuns, how to, how to kind of go about witnessing to all the people that aren't Christians today, and a, and a scathing look at the statistics of the declining church. A panel Q&A with four different people in our denomination who have suffered severe religious persecution. Uh, one of them was imprisoned uh, in, in China at, at for some time. One of them was, was Andrew in Turkey. There were some others who suffered various degrees of persecution over the years and how to prepare for that. Uh, a presentation on human trafficking. That was a highlight. Um, planning for retirement as a pastor. You know, we, that's, that's recharging. Uh, and then how to survive the grind of ministry. Now, you hear the theme recharge, and then you see all of these kind of topical things, and you go, how on earth? Like, who picked that theme? Right? Either A, who, who on earth chose that theme, or who, who chose all the speakers? Because one of those people, they should have talked to each other. It, it seems like they were just two separate people in two different states that never got their story straight. Right? But here's, here's what, I'll, what is interesting. When we gathered as the people of God, and there was about 800 more or more pastors and elders representing the entirety of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, hundreds and hundreds of churches represented. After spending a day listening to topics like that and then sitting in on parliamentary business meetings, they got together sporadically throughout that time for worship. And you would think, I don't know about you, if I spent a whole day doing that, I would come into the sanctuary and the worship would start to play and I would look like this. Remember God, my righteousness and freedom. Ugh. I just want to go to sleep. Can't wait till the sermon starts so I can close my eyes. But I want to give you a taste um, of, of what worship at GA looked like after 800 plus pastors and elders heard some of these talks that would put you to shame and to sleep and to just make you want to cry. no mics. There was a point um, that I didn't tape because I was too engaged in the worship where things got so loud they had a full band with drums on stage and you couldn't hear them because the congregation overpowered those who had functional microphones. Uh, I told Roger, I joked, it'd be the easiest worship service ever to run sound for because if you just turned it off halfway through, no one would have noticed. We just would have kept singing with fervor. If you ever want to experience the beautiful worship of God in a way that you've never seen before, you've got to get in a room of 800 pastors and elders who are singing at the top of their lungs. It is a beautiful and encouraging thing. And so for me, it was this weird kind of tension. It didn't make sense. How can we experience talks about all of the ways in which the world is just going down the tubes and all of the challenges that lie ahead and all the fatigue that ministry brings 
and the way that we're trying to move this world in the direction of God and seemingly not getting anywhere, how do we talk about all that and then still get up and worship with a joy and a fervor so loud it drowns out a sound system of a 5,000-member church? And that's what we're going to look at this morning. How do those two things hold in tandem? Because I don't know about you, there are weeks when the last thing I feel like doing is coming in here and singing with any kind of a fervor or a joy. Right? And I'm leading the singing part time. <laughs> it's just the world that we're in. It's hard, it's tiring, it's exhausting. But, but yet we find this jubilance that we see in the people that are leading our churches all across the country and the world. What do those two things have to do with each other? And how do we get from A to B? And our psalm this morning speaks to that. We're in Psalm 126. If you remember, we're talking about the Psalms of Ascent, the songs that the, the people of God would have sung on their way up to the Jerusalem during their pilgrimages of various feasts and festivals. Uh, when some of these Psalms were written is debatable. There's some theories about Babylonian exile and return time frame, but we don't really know. That's our best guess. But these are songs that they sang as they prepared to go to Jerusalem to meet with, with God. Right? And so this morning's Psalm is packed. It's really short, but it's packed with deep, dripping theological meaning. And it speaks to this conundrum by using a theme of Christian joy. And so this morning I want to invite us to stand together as we hear the word of God. If you're new and you're wondering why we stand when we read God's word, it is, it is a, a reverence and an attention call. Right? Because by now you've heard me introduce a sermon and you're starting to go to sleep. So I make you get up so at the very least you hear the Bible read and then you can go to sleep again if you want to uh, and not listen to anything I have to say. That's okay. But you're going to stay awake for this part because you're standing and you're energized and you're ready. And then at the end of the reading we always respond with is the word of the Lord and you say? Praise be to God. And you say? Praise be Thank you. We should actually say it as if we're praising God for his word. Let's hear from Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. And then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. And then said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams of Negeb. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. And he who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. It's the word of the Lord. That's pretty good. We'll keep working on that. Have a seat. The psalm is organized into three sections, and I'll leave it up here for, for a time so you can kind of follow along. Uh, it, it's, it's one of those times where it's beautifully split up in threes, and each, each section has two verses, making six verses. Uh, and, it, and it's split up in terms of tense. So if you look at the psalm, the first two verses are in the past tense, right? The second two verses, three and four, are in the present tense, of, at least of the person that is writing the psalm, right? To us, it's all past tense. And then the final section, if you look at verses five and six, it's a, it's a future. Those who sow, those who shall, those who will, right? Anticipating what God is doing. And so that matters for a little bit later, but the, the tenses really help us break this up, right? In the first two verses, what we see is that in the past, they're looking to God's faithfulness, right? 
Then they move to looking at the current state of joy, right? Number three, the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, right? In the moment, right? So they look back to what God has done. And then as they look back, they're in the present and they go, indeed, the Lord is doing great stuff. How wonderful is he? Keep doing it, God. And then they look to the future and they anticipate the things that the Lord will continue to do. It's not a question, right? They're not asking it says, those who sow in tears shall reap. Right? Not, Lord, help them reap. Or, Lord, please, if, you, if it be your will, cause them to, to reap. No. It, they, they know that that's what's going to happen. Right? And so that's the description of that. And here's, here's some important key things. Verse 1 describes this very sudden change. Right? What does it say? When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. And then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. Most likely, this psalm was written during the time of Babylonian return. Um, if, you, if you've read through the narrative of that, you know, the, the, the people of God were captured and they were exiled to Babylon. The city of Jerusalem was completely destroyed and they were without hope. And, and this kind of lasted for a really long time. But one of the weird things is when the Lord allows them all of a sudden to return, when he frees them from captivity, it, it's like out of the blue. It's just a, you get to go home now. And so there are people oppressed, suffering under the thumb of Babylon, and then it's just all of a sudden, you now get to go home. Right? They woke up that day just like any other. And now they just get to go home. It's this sudden thing. The Lord has them in one place oppressed, and then just like a snap of his finger, all of a sudden, they realize that that's not the case anymore, and they get to go back and be in the city and start to rebuild. Now they, they will have hardship when they get back, but we think that this was more written kind of as a recounting of that specific moment. And so what did they say? It was like we were in a dream. Like most of us at night had dreams about what it would be like to be free one day. And then we woke up and, and like it was like, pinch me. Are we really? Out of the blue, all of a sudden. And so they give a thanks to God. And, and if you want to get an idea for just how monumentous and out of the blue and how big of a thing it was that they were freed from Babylon, you can look at the next verse. And you might miss this if you don't look carefully. This is the second part of verse 2. Then they said, so it's our mouth filled with laughter, our tongue, then they, so no longer talking about the Israelites, but someone else, they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The nations we're talking about are the, the surrounding tribes and, and nations, the pagan ones, the non-God-fearing and God-honoring, other gods, right? They are pagan nations that are looking in on the Israelite plight. And the, here, here's what this verse says. The Lord's moving of freeing them from captivity was so sudden and so miraculous and so against anything that makes sense in the culture and so out of the blue that the nations around them that were pagan and could care less and didn't even believe in their God, even those nations had to acknowledge the Lord has done a great thing for them. Can you imagine if the Lord moved in our church to such a degree that people outside that don't know who Jesus is have never given a thought to who, who God even is, have, have nothing to say other than, wow, God has done a great thing in that place. What's the scope and size of what God would have to do in this church 
for the non-Christians outside of here to start to say phrases like, the Lord has done great things for, for Stoprez. That have to be some pretty monumental stuff, right? The kind of stuff that makes the news in a good way. Right? It's a sudden, sudden shift that they encounter. Right? This is huge. And so then in verse 3, we have the response. The psalmists are now in the present. They are in Jerusalem. They are in the rebuilding. They're in the thick of it. Things are hard, but they're steadfast. There's a recounting of what happened in the first two verses, and then there's the, the present where they say, you know, the Lord is good. The Lord has done great things for us. They echo the nations. Indeed, he has. We are glad. Restore our fortunes. Continue to do what you're doing, God. And then we get to the very end, right? But first, this Nijab. Nijab. What on earth is Nijab? Right? The, the metaphors that are used in this psalm are, are pretty important, uh, both this one and the one that comes in 5 and 6. The streams of Nejeb. Nejeb was a very dry region, and there was these stream beds. Like if you walked, you know, you'd almost see like, like branches in the soil where there was a stream once, but it's dried up. Right? There's all these little kind of lines, whatever. But it was an area of, of kind of desert climate where there was no water, no, no refreshment, no sign of life. Um, but you had these kind of streams. And when there was a, a pounding of rain every once in a while, even far off in the mountains, what would happen is this, this dry space that looked like nothing could ever come in terms of life would fill up. These, these, these little cracks would fill up really quickly. And so you'd have months and months of just dry and dead. But then when it rained, all of a sudden, like, poof, there'd be water everywhere. And stuff would sprout to life. Be like an oasis in the desert out of the blue all of a sudden. So they're saying, restore our fortunes. Do what you did in Babylon again. Just like you've done before and before and before. And like we think and believe you'll continue to do. Right? So they're saying, do it. Do something big and quickly. Bring, bring the fortunes to us with a speed and a suddenness with which you brought the deliverance from Babylon. And so the image of that present verses of three and four is one of sudden shift. And we've been a part of that. We've seen times when the Lord does something suddenly and out of the blue. We'll spend some, some time at the very end in prayer over this. But, but some of the news that broke this week was very sudden and out of the blue. And whatever your thoughts are on that, we can talk. But, but the Lord did something to undo something. And it was sudden. And it was out of the blue. Sometimes in the world that we live in, in our personal lives, in our lives of the church, in the lives of the country, in the lives of the world, there are times the Lord moves in a sudden way. Many of you will tell me that in the midst of struggle and strife, there are times where you have felt an unexplainable peace wash over you. And not been able to really understand why. Because the Lord sometimes moves in a way that is sudden and quick. Right? Now let's contrast that. When we get to the last two verses, it's this kind of prophetic sense of the future, right? Like I said, it's not a question where he says, Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, there's a lot of sowing imagery, shall come home with shouts of joy. The imagery that's used here is farming. Who here has either spent some time on a farm or maybe you, you grew up on a farm, right? Like, or maybe you have, you, you have family in, in history that at one point were on a farm, right? Farm life is hard life. Right? It's, it's a tough world. Farming is not like a, like I, I love mulching because it's, it's a lot of work, but it's instant gratification. Right? Like mulching's gross. 
But like you can have one day and your entire property looks a whole lot different than it did when you started, right? Versus like weeding where I feel like I can spend 16 hours weeding and my house doesn't look any different. Right? It's like the same as it was before, right? Farming is hard work. It's a lot of work. It's consistent work. It's day in. It's day out. You don't really take a day off if you're a farmer, right? You're constantly out. You're up early and you're up late. And most of the work you do as a farmer is for a reward that you will reap much later. Almost every bit of labor that a farmer commits is for a reward that they will not see for days and months later. And so the, the, the metaphors of three and four and five and six are very stark contrasts, right? And we'll talk about why that is in, in a little bit. But we see that in sometimes the Lord works quickly and sometimes you know, it's, it's a reward that is slow earned. Right? So, so how does this all fit together? How does this function to fit a conundrum that, that we introduced at the very beginning? There's two main ways the this psalm this speaks to our modern context. Right? The first is this. Like I said, it was written in three tenses. Past, present, and future. Right? It remembers God's work in Zion, freeing the people. It thanks God for their current circumstance. And then it looks forward to this ultimate deliverance and vindication. Where all of the things we do with toil, and all of the work we commit to, and all of the ways that we struggle through life and suffer, ultimately will lead to a joy that we can't even imagine. And so, just like the psalm follows this pattern, it is a pattern that is laid out for us. The flow of this psalm is a blueprint for the Christian life. Right? And the key of this psalm is this. It looks to the past, not in a nostalgic way, but as a bedrock of hope for what is to come and what our current circumstance is and what we do with it. Right? Thinking back to how God has been at work as a demonstration to how he will continue to work. Right? Because God's character does not change. The way that God moves in the Old Testament and the New Testament is the way that he will move after, the way that he's continued to move, and the way that he is still moving today. We serve a God that is unchanging. When I was an intern, you know, I, I'm not a big vision mission statement guy. I think they're things that get written and then tucked away on a website and never talked about again. But one of the best mission statements that I ever heard was when I was an intern in college at Memorial Park. And their, their mission statement, I think it's changed now, but it used to be uh, preaching the, the never-changing God to the ever-changing world. Right? We preach and serve under a God who does not change. Who he was then is who he is now. And he'll continue to move that way. Right? Hear this. Christian joy is not the same as happiness. We mistake those things. We think if we're not happy, then we're not joyful. That is not the truth. You can be profoundly unhappy and immensely joyful. Because joy is not the same as happiness. Happiness depends on circumstance. Happiness depends on what happened to us that week, that day, that hour, that minute. Happiness depends on how much sleep you got, which for me as a general rule is not much. Right? And for my wife, even less. 
Which, by the way, as I was relaxing and worshiping and hearing about persecuted Christians in Detroit, she was home with two kids. So, you know, maybe you lay hands on her after we get out of here today. <laughs> but, but happiness is, is dependent on circumstance. Joy isn't dependent on our circumstance. It's not about what happened to us that week or that year or that decade. Joy is grounded in nothing else but God's character and who he is. It is a consequence of faithful life in Christ. And when we miss that and confuse the two, what happens is we try to seek joy in the places we should be seeking happiness. We look to it in other places in this world that are not lasting places. Peterson puts it this way. A common but futile strategy for achieving joy is trying to eliminate things that hurt. We get rid of pain by numbing the nerve ends. We get rid of insecurity by eliminating risk. We get rid of disappointment by depersonalizing our relationships and then try to lighten the boredom of that life by buying joy in the form of vacations and entertainment. There is not a hint of that in Psalm 126. Our joy is not contingent on our happiness. You can be profoundly distraught about the week that you've had and still live and press into joy. The second is this. The two images in verses 3, 4, and 5, 6 are meant to provide an application for how we approach God and how we live the Christian life. Here's what I mean. The first image, what? The water comes suddenly. Sometimes, in the midst of our struggle and strife, the Lord moves quickly. The Lord delivers us in a way that makes us, causes us to be astonished. Right? Sometimes we as a church, we're, we're going to have moments where we, we do something, we try something in this community, and the Lord just pours his blessing out upon it. And all of a sudden, just people start showing up, and there seems to be almost like a revival happening. We will experience those times and ebbs and flows in the life of this church and the big church. But other times, Christian life is a lot like farming, where we pour in day in, day out, and we go through the work of obedience and study and care and love and mission. And we get up tired, but we get up anyway. And we keep going and going and going, seemingly never having any kind of reprieve. But one day, we will. There are times that life in Christ moves quickly. There are times that life and blessing in Christ comes slow. But both of them are God at work. And we need to understand that. Just because God doesn't work on our timetable, or just because God doesn't seem to bring fountains of joy during the times that we think we want them, doesn't mean that he's not working towards the ultimate joy of all of those who are a part of his kingdom. Sometimes we have to be willing to, no pun intended, joyfully wait on the Lord as we labor towards that blessing together. And so as Christians, we are called to a life of joy. We are called to be neither pessimists, nor optimists, nor realists. I always like to think of myself as a realist, but that's not what we're called to be. We're called to be hopefulists. It's a word that I can make up. The grammar, the grammar guy in the booth is laughing because he's like, that's not a word. I just made it up. You're welcome, Roger. <laughs> right? We're hopefulists because under the consistent, steady hand of God, we can be joyful and optimistic and hopeful about the future. 
It's not optimism in the sense of just no matter what happens to me, glasses always have full just because, right? It's not a blind optimism, but it's an educated, hopeful optimism that understands that no matter what we're going through, God is at work, and he is doing a thing, and he is allowing there to be a world that ultimately we will have joy, and if not in this life, then in the next. We're called to that. We're to look past, look to the past of God's work, to be thankful for the present, and ultimately to allow that to create our future hope and joy. And then we're to live that joy out. It's the call of, one, of 126. One final note. What this isn't a command to do. Right? We're commanded to be a joyful people. So if you're saying, I don't really want to be joyful. Tough, you have to be joyful. What this is not saying, and hear me really clear with this, is that we are a people that are called to smile through our pain and to walk around the world and say, you know, how are you? Great. Everything's great. I'm dying inside, but it's so great. Because Jesus, do you believe me? I don't believe me. Right? We're not called to be fake. We're not called to put on a brave face when we are in sorrow. Part of the, the, the life of Christians are to have times of sorrow and lament. But ultimately, what undergirds all of that? At the end of the day, when you put your head on your pillow at night, can you sleep easy because you know that even though you're sorrowful and even though you're struggling, there is hope. Right? You are not called to put on a fake face. And if you've ever been made in a church to feel like you've got to go out there and smile in the name of Jesus so that people might come to him, that's hogwash. <clears throat> that's not how we are to live, right? Life is hard, and joy is not a thing that we do for God, but joy is a thing that God gifts to us. Here's one final one by Peterson. Joy is not a requirement of Christian discipleship. Hear that again. Joy is not a requirement of Christian discipleship. You are not required to be joyful to be a Christian. If you're saying, I don't feel a lot of joy, does that make me a bad Christian? No. It's a consequence of Christian discipleship. It is not what we have to acquire in order to experience life in Christ. It, what, it's what comes to us when we are walking the way of faith and obedience. Right? When we submit our lives to Christ when we order our ways after his ways, when we look to the past and we see and remind ourselves of the ways that God has been at work. And in the present, we allow that to shape our decision-making, and then we allow it to shape our hope for the future. The Lord gifts us with joy. And we won't have to fake it. Right? So don't. Be real. When people ask you how you are, you don't have to be. There's a meme that's like a dog sitting, you know, a cartoon dog sitting on a chair at the dining room table with flames all around in the house, and it just says, everything's fine. Don't, don't be that person. Be real with the world around you, with your struggles and your pains, and the life that you're trying to lead but struggling to. Be honest about your sins and the things that hold you back from fullness and life in God, but undergirding all of it, let there be a hope that says, and despite all of these things, Trust that God will do what he's always done because God is who he's always been. And in that, I find joy. Let us walk together as God's people and let's experience the immense gift of God's joy.
as we remind ourselves of all he has done, all he is doing, and all that he will do. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you are the infinite, abundant, never-ending, overflowing source of our joy. Lord, we find happiness in a whole host of things. We find happiness in our paychecks and in the things and trips and time off that it buys us. Many of us even find happiness in our vocations and in our jobs beyond just a paycheck. There's a joy with purpose that brings us happiness as we work. We find happiness in the, the eyes and the smiles and the laughter of our children when they behave. We find happiness in the fellowship that we have and the camaraderie that we share. We find happiness in the music that the world offers and in entertainment and movies and TV shows. We find happiness in all kinds of places, Lord, but there is only one place that we know as the people of God that we can go to find true, lasting joy that is not fleeting, and that is in you. So, Lord, we pray for your spirit to come to overflow us with the gift of joy. That as the psalmist proclaims, we might remind ourselves of what you have done, the blessings that you have brought to our life. Lord, the very reason that we are here and get to be with this church and the people in it, that is you bringing blessing into our life. We can look across this congregation and look to the individual people who have, who have brought joy to me because you have put them in the midst of my life and my family's life. It is you and you alone who are the provider of joy. And so, Lord, we pray that your spirit might inhabit us and remind us to come to you and to sit at your feet, that when we feel a lacking of joy, that we might go to the fountain and drink from it like a fire hose, and that we might then go out and proclaim with honesty in our circumstance where our hope and our joy comes from. Be with us as we go out this week to live out this truth. We love you. We praise you. And all as people said, amen.